Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. Uh, let's take a moment now to pray together. Father, we just want to come before you this morning and praise you for your righteousness, praise you for your love. We praise you for your omnipotence, that you're all-powerful and you're sovereign. You're, you, you rule over all things. And we thank you also for your mercy and kindness, the motivation, your love for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to be buried, and to be raised from the dead on the third day. We thank you, Father, that salvation is by grace, through faith, not of works. We thank you, Father, that you have provided us all your thinking and all the information that you want us to know about you, about your son, about who we were, about our future. We thank you that you've written all that down in the Bible and given us an incredible teacher of the Holy Spirit so that we can understand things that were never revealed until Jesus Christ came back to be with you and he sent the Spirit down to us. This morning we ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would guide us as we continue to study the Gospel of John together, and that in particular, Father, that we would understand how magnificent your Son is, and that uh, as we watch him walk through Jerusalem and Galilee, and we hear what he has to say and see what he did, that it may build us up in our confidence as who he is and who we are in him. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alrighty, once again, as a reminder, at the end of August, we're taking a vacation. It's from August 22nd to August 30th, and we'll have no services Thursday the 25th, and we won't have a service either on Sunday, August 28th. And I want to take bets that at least one person will show up even after this has been announced 10 times. Anybody want to take me on that one? We're not going to sing this morning because we're in a closer environment, and I guess there's some COVID in some sense is coming back. So just to be safe side this morning. Um, also, we do ask uh, to keep our missionaries in prayer um, and their congregations. We pray for um, Pastor Kingsley, who, by the way, is uh, beginning to uh, put together a plan to visit Nigeria later in the year. As I get information from him, I'll, I'll pass it on to, to you. Um, also, we ask you to pray particularly for Christians that are being persecuted, and there's so many countries where they are, and so we ask particular prayers for them. Also, we will be back in the cafeteria next Sunday, um, but today here we are, so a little more, a little more intimate this morning, which is not a bad thing. All right, let's begin. Please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11, the title of today's message, So That You May Believe. So that you may believe. John chapter 11, starting in verse 11 this morning. This he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. 
Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now, when the Lord stated his intention to his disciples to return to Judea, they tried to talk him out of going, but he wouldn't hear of it. Jesus was not going to be denied when it came to the plan of God. And he used the image of daylight and nighttime to remind his disciples that he was the light of the world and that he still had more work to do. So now in verse 11, he tells them why he is going back to Judea. And as he puts it, he needs to rouse Lazarus from sleep. Now here, that when he, in, in verse 11, he's saying, um, waken him from sleep sleep, he's using a figure of speech, as he explains later on. He speaks of sleep as a euphemism for death. Well, what's a youth? I got to pronounce it myself. What's a euphemism? Well, you know what it is? It's a mild or inoffensive word or an expression that's mild, inoffensive, that takes the place of one that would be considered too harsh or taboo when referring to something unpleasant. Let me give you this quotation because I think this says it a little more simply. Euphemisms are unpleasant truths wearing diplomatic cologne. <laughs> That's what they are. Unpleasant truths wearing diplomatic cologne. Well, we are awash in euphemisms today. And so I figured I'd start out by talking about a few of them. For example, when the boss says we have to leverage our resources, what he really means is you'll be working weekends. The New Orleans police rejected the term looting after Katrina, but they did allow for the possibility of this, appropriation of non-essential items from business. Come on in. Morning. So that's a euphemism. I read in the paper yesterday that Amazon is saying that healthcare is, listen to this, high on the list of experiences that need reinvention. Wouldn't you like that? High on the list, wonder what list that is, of experiences that need reinvention. Translation, corporate takeover target. Those are euphemisms. I'll give you one more. Certified pre-owned vehicle. They didn't have these when I was a kid. They had these, used cars. So those are euphemisms, okay? A, a, a mild way of saying something on that, that if you came right out and said it, some would feel it's too harsh or a taboo. In any event, that's what Jesus does here. Now, you might say, well, he's usually direct. Why would he do that? Seems like a weakness. Seems like he's not who he usually is. Well, the reason is, is he's also compassionate. And so he doesn't want to come out necessarily. There's no reason for him at first to say it um, as death. And so therefore he tries to say it another way, but get the point across. But once again, he didn't, they didn't receive the point that he was trying to make. Let's now read verses 12 and 13 again. John 11, 12 to 13. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal truth. Once again, his disciples misunderstood what Jesus was saying. We've seen that happen several times already. We'll see it some more. They misunderstand what Jesus is saying, and therefore, he's going to have to come out and say it more directly. Now, why do they misunderstand what he was saying? 
We're going to see in a minute that this wasn't actually an unusual expression for death in the Bible. We're going to see some other passages where it's also used. Sleep is used as a euphemism or an expression that means the same thing as dead. But they weren't thinking. That was the problem. They were still emotional. They, they didn't want him to return to Judea because they were afraid what would happen to him. They didn't want to go back. And so they were grasping at anything that could say, maybe we don't need to, right? If he's saying he's asleep, we're going to take him literally. He's asleep. Why would why would we have to go t- all the way to Bethany just to have him w- awake? He'll wake by himself and he'll be better. He'll be better. He'll be healed, maybe even. They, we, we don't have to go there. But if they thought about it, they would have realized that Jesus wouldn't have been going to Judea unless there was a really good reason. Waking someone from a nap just wouldn't qualify. Remember, Jesus always did what? In everything he did, everything he said, he did one thing, which is to glorify his father, to do the father's work. Clearly, this is another example of that. And waking somebody from literal sleep could hardly be considered a deed that would glorify God. Right. I mean, it's it's a thing that we do. Usually when somebody's late or they slept too long or they're they're sitting on a couch that you need for something else. But it's not something that glorifies God. It's not something where people look at and say, wow, I'm amazed. This is this is amazing. Our God is amazing because you just woke somebody up. No. And by the way, even healing, if it was if it was a matter of healing, they'd already seen him earlier healing from a distance. Remember when the when the nobleman's son was close to death. And Jesus said, go home. Your son is healed. He did, Jesus didn't go with him, right? The, the man went home, and while he was halfway home, his servants came out to him and said, your son has been healed. And he remember, he asked him when, and he says, well, it was about so-and-so. And, and the guy realized it was the last the exact moment that Jesus said it. So he healed from a distance. Waking somebody up from being asleep will not be the kind of thing that would glorify God in any special way. He could have healed Lazarus from a distance also. But you see, any of that would pale in comparison to what we're going to see, which is Jesus standing right at the tomb of Lazarus and calling his name and calling him forth after he'd been dead for four days. That makes an impact. That causes people to be astounded. That, since he's going to pray to his father before he does it, would glorify God. That's the reason he was going back. But his disciples really didn't want to didn't want to see the real reason, because, again, they were just looking for any excuse not to have to go. Verse 13. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. You see, in verse 13, he's got to explain this figure speech to them because they're so dense that and, and stubborn that they won't. Pay attention and, and absorb what he's saying. Now, John explains it. You see, see, in verse 13, all right, this is not Jesus speaking again. Okay, This is John telling, telling us Jesus was had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. You see, Jesus is saying something in a gentle way. A sleep is gentler way of saying dead. We have a lot of those, by the way. You ever notice how reluctant people are to say the simple words, he died, right? We sometimes say he fell asleep, right? Or he passed on, or there's a lot of expressions we use. Why? Because death is the ultimate unpleasant thing. 
And so we've invented a lot of euphemisms for it. And that's when you typically see that death, um, disaster, uh, sexuality. There's about five things that dominate these euphemisms because people don't want to say it directly. Many of them. I'm sure some of you, when I said sexuality, even said, oh, I don't want to hear that word. I, I could use different words for that. Let me tell you about the birds and the bees. Right. Euphemism. All right. So. Beyond that, by the way, though, in a certain sense, Lazarus, Lazarus really was just sleeping. Why? Because Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. You see, it was a temporary situation, his death. Not that much different, really, from sleep. If somebody were to come in and awaken you from sleep, now he said, we, he's saying he's, Lazarus is asleep because he knows he's going to come, in a sense, awaken him, but only since he was dead, that awakening would be raising him from the dead. So in a certain way, he was saying the truth, even when he said Lazarus was asleep. Asleep, awaken. Dead and raised. This is what we find in other passages as well in the Bible. Let me show you two of them. Please turn to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Asleep and awakened, dead and raised. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And by the way, I'm going to give you two examples, but there's a lot of them. You know, you know, it, Paul in chapter five of the book of Ephesians talks about awake sleeper and Christ will rise on you. There he's talking about spiritual death, you see, but it's still the same idea of from death to life. Let's look at Daniel chapter 12, verse two, last chapter of Daniel, future things. And this is what the angel says to Daniel. Many of those who sleep, but notice they sleep in the dust of the ground. That's not normally where I would take a nap. Why? Because what is he talking about? Death. Right. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will wake. These, the righteous, to everlasting life, but the others, the unbelievers, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He says sleep and awake, but he really means death and resurrection, just like Jesus means. Right. What we've seen in chapter 11. There's a story also in the Gospel of John that is strikingly similar to what we have in chapter 11 of John. A story in the Gospel of Mark that is really similar to the raising of Lazarus in John 11. I'd like you to turn now to Mark chapter 5, verse 35. Mark chapter 5, verse 35. A few weeks ago, we saw that while Lazarus being raised from the dead was a unique, most amazing miracle ever. Jesus had also raised people from the dead earlier. Right? We saw in the Old Testament as well that Elisha, Elisha raised people from the dead. But remember, we saw it was like soon after the person died. Remember, not four days. So that was what was a totally amazing about what Jesus had done because the body would have already started to decay. 
Okay. The other places where we see, and we saw this, where we see people being raised from the dead, they had been dead a really short time, less than a day, in some cases minutes, like what we're going to see this morning. Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 35. While he was still speaking, this is Jesus still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, notice what he said, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Hmm. And he allowed no one, Jesus, to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, the inner circle. They came to the house, the synagogue official, And he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. There we have it. That same expression, asleep as a euphemism for dead. He was dead. I mean, the synagogue official, um, the, the people that came from the house of the synagogue official were correct saying that his daughter had died. But Jesus didn't see it that way. Again, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. Why? Because to them, it was ridiculous that that you would look at a a child, a 12-year-old in the case, who had died and say, she's just asleep. As a matter of fact, if you thought about it from from a human point of view, right, From a common sense point of view, to walk in on a family who just lost a 12-year-old girl and say, well, she's just asleep, seems like a thoughtless thing to say, right? Don't you think? I mean, if you put yourself in that situation, you just lost a 12-year-old child, and somebody walks in and says, hey, she's just asleep, right? That wouldn't be what you'd want to hear at that moment, unless it was true, unless it was true. Verse 40, they began laughing at him, but putting them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, that would be Peter, James, and John, and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately, They were completely astounded, see, giving glory to God. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. By the way, when Jesus rises from the dead, he's going to do the same thing to show that he's really alive in his body. He's going to ask for something to eat. Here we have the same elements, though, that we're going to see in chapter 11. Look at again at verse 36. Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, that the daughter had died, said to the synagogue official two things. Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Believe is the central reason why Jesus performs miracles. There's one goal in mind, that you would no longer persist in unbelief, but believe. Believe in who he is. Okay, and not only that, but again, he uses the expression "sleep" for "died." 
And it was an astounding event, one that actually produced the goal in many cases that people saw it and did believe. At least they believed something unusual, something supernatural about who Jesus is. And we're going to see that. Um, we've seen it already in the Gospel of John, and we're going to see another installment of it today, that that when you look at the, the, the ministry of Jesus, even with his disciples, he brings them along, right? Now, some of them recognized all the way back in chapter one who he was, but he's also with a, with a sort of a wider circle of people, especially he is he is revealing aspects of who he is a little bit at a time. OK, that shows you something about the normal process of coming to believe something. You know how often we get so frustrated with people when we preach the gospel and they, they don't immediately get it. Right. Well, it may be that they're on their way. Right? They haven't yet come to the point where they in that moment, through the grace of God, believe that Jesus is 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 God in the flesh. That he died for their sins and was raised from the dead. However, we are different in our situation today than those people who walk with him in the first century in that we have the scriptures. See, we can as we did, we can go to the end of the Gospel of John first, first right away. First thing we do and see the purpose of it. Right. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And then you look at that and you say, what things? And then you can go through the gospel and see the things. First of all, the things that he said, and then also second, secondarily, the things that he did. And you see, if we're students of God's word, if we're immersed in the scriptures, we'll have all that at our disposal when we witness, you see. And that's more that's a more powerful way of getting through to people. How do we know that? Because that's the way that the father used through Jesus Christ to get through to people. So while, he, while it happened a little bit at a time in his public ministry, we've got it all now. We've, if, by the, if, if we're in the scriptures, we have it all. And therefore, we have a tremendous advantage, as it were, in witnessing now. Not to mention the fact that, as he did, we also have the spirit indwelling. Okay. So again, he, he, this is an astounding event. Purpose of it is simple. And people would no longer be afraid, but believe who he is. This child is not died, but is asleep. What's their reaction? They laugh at him. They laugh at him. What does that mean? That means they still have blinders on. It means that they really have no idea who he is. Anybody who knew he was the son of God wouldn't be laughing at that moment. Right. They might be praying. They probably be rejoicing. Okay, if he says that he's just that this child is just asleep, he means it. And that means he's going to raise him from the dead. That just shows you the difference between faith and unbelief when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. They're laughing at him. And what does he say in return? Oh, you don't you didn't say this exactly, but essentially, oh, you don't believe me? Watch what I do. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately, by the way, immediately, that is one of Mark's favorite words. If you read the Gospel of John, he's always saying immediately, immediately, which is interesting. In many cases, he's narrating the same event that Matthew and Luke are, are, are narrating. So there's something about how Mark was inspired and gifted to write his Gospel that makes it, boom, immediately. Now, what is that? Well, for people who are action-oriented and for people who have a, a sense of urgency— 
Mark's gospel is the place to be because he he point out he points out the immediate nature. Remember, we saw in Second Corinthians six. Now is the time of salvation. That message really comes through in the gospel of Mark. In any event, immediately the girl gets up and begins to walk. But again, let's ask the question. Why does Jesus do it? Why does Jesus raise this little girl from the dead? Was it that he had an especially close relationship with the synagogue official? Not in it, No, I mean, in the case of Lazarus, he will. But here, that's not the reason, right? The reason is real simple, right? Look at verse 16 again. This is the reason. Do not be afraid, but believe. Do not be afraid, but believe. The fear of that man, you can well imagine, is the fear of of the fact that his daughter was no longer with him. But beyond that, you know, when it comes to accepting Jesus for who he really is, that's a daunting thing if you're really serious about it. To come face to face with the Son of God is something that would and could, could and would in many cases, and should perhaps, cause fear in the in the hearts of men, especially those who don't believe in him yet, right? This is an encounter, right? When you look in the Bible at God's encounters with people, particularly those who don't believe, they're very often jarring and fear-inducing. Think of Moses, right? When he first had the Lord speak to him. I mean, imagine today if if somebody came in our midst um, and declared that he is from an angel from the Lord and then he performs a miracle. I I think the first thing might be fear. It was it was true for Peter and the other fishermen when he performed that amazing miracle of all the fish that were that were gathered in the nets after a night when they didn't catch anything. Right. What did Peter say? Go away. Right. I am a sinning man. Right. So that was the one thing. He says, please don't be afraid any longer. And then, of course, believe. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I want you to believe that I am who I am. And, of course, we will see the exact same thing in the Lazarus story, in the Lazarus miracle. Only what we're going to see in in the case of Lazarus's resurrection from being raised from the dead in chapter 11 is this is going to be faith in a totally intense way, meaning lots of people, right? Meaning that the, the the event is the most miraculous of all. So you can ratchet up the intensity, be prepared for it as we walk through chapter 11 and see not only the miracle itself, but the buildup to it and how central the whole principle of believing is. And now, and now that also brings to mind the fact that, remember, we've seen Jesus knows that by going back to Jerusalem, What's going to happen? He knows the final steps of his journey are going to lead to his death on the cross. And so so you have to as as that's heightened and getting closer as the animosity and hatred of his enemies gets 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 more and more obvious. Then at the same time, what he does gets more and more amazing and more and more people believe in him. So, again, that's that is a key thing that you want to understand in the Gospel of John, that you have these two trends, if you want to call it that, that crisscross. You have the trend of people and disciples believing in him, coming to faith more, more and more. And then you have the opposite trend of the unbelievers getting more and more hostile. All right. That's what happens when Jesus Christ confronts people. He's you can't be indifferent. You either have to go one way or the other. 
All right, let's go back to the Gospel of John now, and let's continue in verse 14 of chapter 11. John 11, 14. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. I'm going to stop there just for a minute. I want you just to think of what they heard. All right, Lazarus is dead. All right, and I am glad. Again, can you see how that in and of itself is a very thoughtless thing to say? Sort Sort of implies indifference or insensitivity. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. But, of course, he goes on. I am glad for your sakes. I am glad that Lazarus is dead for your sakes, that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe, you see. But let us go to him. This is is a pretty incredible verse, by the way. John chapter 11, verse 14. There's so much here. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He levels with them, makes it in no uncertain terms. And I am glad, a very unusual thing to say when your best friend, not your best friend, but a really close friend is dead. I'm glad for your sakes. You see, can you see how that's a um, a, a puzzling thing, a confronting thing to say? I mean, imagine, imagine he, he's not only saying that he's glad he's dead, and he says, I'm glad because of you, right? And if it's you that's hearing that, you might be saying, why? Is it my fault? You know, why would he, what is it, what is it about me that makes him glad that somebody's dead? And then he goes on, though, that I was not there so that the reason why, the reason why Jesus waited for two days, the reason why even now he's glad that he was not there and he is glad for their sakes is for a simple reason that you may believe. But let us go to him. Let us go to him. See, this is a simple gospel, right? It really is. I mean, at the level of what is it teaching? At the level of what's the purpose? And the level was Jesus is single-minded. About what? It's a very simple gospel. It's basically the whole gospel is revealing the identity of Jesus Christ so that people may believe. So, so to me, when I see these things, I get excited. Right? I'm sure a lot of people that hear the teaching, read the Gospel of John at this point, might be just saying, okay, I get it. Why do you keep having to hammer this point home? Well, of course, the reason is, is because he he wants everybody to attach their faith, not blindly, but based on facts, facts that build as you walk through the Gospel of John. More and more is revealed about the kind of relationship that he has with his father, about his ability to perform miracles, about the things that he said, which were mind-blowing. I and the father are one. So these things, as you walk through, get attached, as it were, to the idea of believing in him. So it's no longer a question of believing in. See, some people want to approach the gospel as if they can just say, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And think that you've done your job. When in reality, that's not how God handles it. God handles it by giving you information. Who Think about it. 
who is this Jesus that you're asking me to believe in? Right? That's a reasonable question, don't you think, for somebody to ask you when you're preaching to them? Absolutely. And you got to have answers. You got to know who he is. You got to know that he's the Son of God. And if they ask you about how do you know that, then you can go to the passages. And this is why, by the way, it's really useful if you have a Bible with you when you're witnessing. I know it's not always practical, although these days with the phone technology, there's actually no excuse not for having the word right in front of you. Because why, did, why is that important? Well, the reason is, is that it's never about you. It's never about you arguing or convincing somebody. It is, it is what Jesus said. It is written. Here, look, in this book that's never changed in 2,000 years, it says that Jesus is the Son of God. And here are all the places in the Gospel of John that prove it, right? Now, you're, what are you doing? You're giving people information on which to base their faith in Jesus Christ, that he's the Son of God, that he's the promised Messiah, that he died for your sins, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead. All of these things are, A, well-documented, and B, documented in more detail than perhaps any other living person at that point in time. See, these are all things that it's that people, it really, it really helps for them to know, right, about who Jesus is. All right. Of course, the most important thing was the thing that Jesus got at with the woman who had five husbands, which is you're a sinner and you can't save yourself. Right. That's the message. Right. Sin, righteousness and judgment. Right. So people have to understand that they're sinners. Otherwise, they're not motivated to seek a savior. They have to understand the reason why that the God is displeased with them. The reason why that that if they don't believe that there's a consequence and then what that consequence is, you see, judgment, right? Judgment. So all of those elements, right, are a part of presenting the gospel to people. Are you free in how you do that? Yeah, you're free within within the within the discipline of the word of God. So it's not as if you just robot and you have a canned speech either, right? It's real people, and you're talking to them, and you want to give them the information that they need. That's what we see in the Gospel of John anyway. John 11, we saw, again, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Let us go to him. Of course, here, the first thing that happens is that Jesus drops delicate language and tells them straight out, Lazarus is dead. Then he follows it up with a bold statement. You can't read it any other way than a boldness and, and shock, in a sense, um, something unexpected. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. Glad? Lord, did you misspeak right now? Don't you mean sad? I don't know if glad and sad rhyme in the Greek. It's certainly something that we might say. You don't mean glad. You must mean sad. Jesus, we don't think you've been getting enough sleep. You know, you're, you're, you're speaking, but you don't really make sense. How can you be glad that your friend is dead? To that I say, let him finish. Let him finish. I am glad for your sake that I was not there. For our sake? Now, what's Jesus doing now? He's provoking them. He, he's, he's forcing them to enter into this picture. 
right? He is glad, which is kind of shocking. And he's bringing, he's saying it's because of us that he's glad, right? Now, you can do one of two things at that point. I mean, again, think about yourself in that situation where somebody's coming to you and saying, my, my good friend died, I'm glad, and it's because of you. I mean, that gets your attention, if nothing else, right? Why does he do things like that? Why did he say that to the woman that you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband? Why does he say that? The answer is that he's getting, trying to get people to open their eyes about the facts, about the truth, and, you, and not to avoid the fact that you, are, you cannot escape the reality of what he's trying to get across. He's always doing that. He, Jesus is always, and I put this in the present tense because now through us, his body, and through his word that is living, he's always provoking people. It, it, Paul in, the, in 1 Corinthians says that the message of the gospel is an affront to the flesh of the humans, human beings. He says to the, to the Jews, right, it's a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block. What does that mean? You trip over it, right? You provoke people with it. To the Gentiles, foolishness, just like the people were laughing at Jesus when he said she's just asleep. Foolishness. But to those who believe, right, power, the power in the message of the gospel, you who are being saved, it is the power of God for belief. Jesus is always doing this, provoking people in the hope that they would believe. There's a lesson there, too, for our presentation of the gospel to people. By the way, that's also something that we can't we can't escape, right? As ambassadors for Christ, because if we're if I put it the right way, if they're doing it right, right? If you are if you are if they recognize that you really believe this yourself, you can't help but provoking the unbeliever. And, and so just and I'm sure I know a lot of you have witnessed to, to people, and you know what I'm talking about. Okay, it's going to be provoking. Of course, you're hoping that the provoking leads them to open their eyes. Right. It could go in the opposite direction. We don't know, but we have to be willing to risk that. See, there is a risk in in presenting the gospel to people. There is a risk. Most of them will be provoked in a negative way. Some will be provoked to go and investigate more about what we're saying. Jesus is always saying provocative things, often disturbing things. And that must be for a reason. And if you think about it, it must be that, that it, that's what it takes, usually, to soften a heart. That's what it takes to remove blinders of unbelief. Something shocking, something provoking, something disturbing. So that you may believe. Now, at this point... You, 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 they, they might be, and they have the right to ask, wait a minute, you're glad for our sakes that you were not there so that we may believe. Well, there's a question there, right? And it's a fair question. Believe what? Jesus, what is it that that you are, what is it that you're saying that you were glad you weren't there when your friend died for our sake that we might believe? Believe what? That's a fair question. And at this point, you may not know the answer to that question. You might. But what do we do when we come across something in the word of God and there's a question and we don't have the answer to it yet? Anybody? Right. Or, or 
Right. <laughs> Being a little, giving a little levity at this point. Yeah. Check out the neighborhood. That's all you got to do. What does Jesus want people to believe concerning the raising of Lazarus? What does he want people to believe concerning the raising of Lazarus? Well, guess what we're going to do? We're going to check out the neighborhood. And we don't have to go too far. We just have to go to the house next door. Look at John chapter 11, verse 17. John chapter 11, verse 17. Because that's the way this works. You know, if we're Jesus, of course, once he says that you may believe, he doesn't answer the question right away. For them, he's going to have to get there to the to the tomb of Lazarus. He's going to have to have already spoken to Martha and said some things to her. OK, and we're going to see why that conversation happened, what it was about. And so, again, he has to bring them along for the ride. But, of course, we have the advantage since it's already written, to go ahead ourselves in the word. Okay, we don't have to wait to walk literally with Jesus. Remember how they were going to walk too, remember? The, the, the treacherous road, remember, from, from Jericho to Jerusalem. John eleven seventeen. So when Jesus came, okay, this is this is coming to Bethany beyond the Bethany near Jerusalem. When Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, the reason why they came four days, quote, late was because Jesus waited. Right. So but but now you say, why did he wait? Couldn't he have come the day after he died? Well, again, what's his purpose? Give glory to God so that people may believe if he got there one day after it would have been a miracle. Okay, but it would have been a miracle like the daughter of the synagogue official. But if he waited a couple of days and he got there four days after, this would be an amazing, astounding miracle. Because okay? not only would he be raising somebody from the dead, it would be four days. The body would have been decomposing. All right. So John eleven seventeen again. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Jesus is near. It's still daylight in those 12 hours of his ministry. But he's near to nightfall, just like he's near Jerusalem, two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. We're going we're gonna to look at this, of course, when we get there starting next week. But I want you once again to notice the connection between the Jews and Jerusalem. Okay, he says it's near Jerusalem, two miles off. And you could put so many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary. So who are the Jews? Well, they come from Jerusalem, right? That's the difference. I mean, after all, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, well, we would say today were Jewish, right? They were they were of the tribe of Judah, or we don't know that for certain, but since they were in the southern part, okay, they were definitely Jewish, but they weren't what John is talking to here, Jews, because that specific, remember, word that he uses were people from Jerusalem, especially the leaders there, the chief priests and the Pharisees, but also the people that followed the chief priests and the Pharisees. So many of the Jews, verse 19, had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. 
And Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been there, here, my, my brother would not have died. But notice what she says next. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, what would you say is 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 the situation of Martha such that she would be able to say such a bold thing? She's a believer already, right? Of course. Whatever you ask of God, he will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She could have been essentially thinking about Daniel 12 too, right? There will be the last day and my brother will rise at that point, okay? But, but in a sense, that was sort of a disappointment to Martha. Yes, I know he's going to rise on the last day, but I miss him now. I know that if you wanted to, you could bring him back from the dead now. So Jesus goes on. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Another really provocative thing to say. You can't be neutral about Jesus Christ. He is saying, you understand resurrection? You understand that there's going to be one? Don't, but you, what you may not understand with it yet is that I am the resurrection. It's, it's, in other words, he's saying, I have the power of resurrection. And also for, for, for us, it means that, that we are identified with the one who has risen from the dead. We will have a resurrection body like his. He is the resurrection. We just got through looking at light just a few verses ago. What does it say at the very beginning of the Gospel of John? What is that light? Well, yes, but also life. Remember we saw that? His life was the light of men. So he is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying life is standing right before you. Not only life, but resurrection life is right here. With God, all things are possible. And I am not just talking about the last day he's now sending that message to Martha. I'm talking about today. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What's the whole point here? Why is, why is this conversation happening between Jesus and Martha at this point? He asked her a question, and it's an interesting question. I want you to think about this. Didn't we see in verse 22 that she gave evidence that she believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, right? That, or at least he had the ability, put, let, me put it, let me back up a little bit and say, at least she, had, she believed he had the ability to raise somebody from the dead. Now, you might say, well, a lot of people considered that he might be able to do that because of his track record and people saw him feeding the 5,000. But there's more here. She's expressing something that is more than just saying, I think you're a miracle worker. She's saying, I know who you are. Whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So in a sense, and we say we pointed this out, she's already a believer. And yet, and yet when Jesus introduces this new information, I am the resurrection and the life. When he goes on to say, now, he, I've been asking people to believe in me. But guess what? If you do, you will live even if you die. You see, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You see, he's not saying, do you believe that I am who I am at this point? 
He's saying, do you believe this specific information that I haven't revealed yet? I am the resurrection and the life. And that was the that was the sense of what we read when we see again and again the disciples witnessing another miracle. Jesus saying something amazing about himself that they hadn't heard yet. That it's always it's it's always a beckoning to believe not only who he is, but what he does and what he says. All right. Twenty seven. She said to him, yes, Lord. Now she finally realized exactly what he's talking about. He said, yes, Lord, I have believed that you, I have believed, she's recalling, that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. By the way, if that statement is familiar, there's a good reason for that. Why? I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Anybody? It's Sunday morning, I know people are still waking up here. Woman at the well. Woman at the well, but even more so, remember I said we can go to the end and read the purpose? This is the whole purpose, isn't it? These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Right here, Mother says, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. What I didn't know yet was that you are the resurrection. I knew that you were the Christ, the Son of God, but now I'm, I'm realizing something else amazing about you, that you are life. You are the resurrection. Jesus wants his disciples. The reason why he provoked them was saying, I'm glad for your sakes that it was not here so that you might believe. This is what he wants them to believe too, ultimately. He wants his disciples to believe also that he is the resurrection and the life. There are seven statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John where he says, I am, this is identity statement, and then he says something amazing, like, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the good shepherd. And when he does that, he's revealing more aspects of who he is. And and so every time we see one of those, right, I am the bread of life, right, something new, something new, something that if you're paying attention will, will give you a greater sense of worship about who Jesus is. Jesus wants his disciples to believe that he is the resurrection and the life. That's why he's glad for their sakes that he was not there when Lazarus died. Let's keep going now. John, I mean, let's let's look again, sorry, at John chapter 11, verse 27. She said to him, Martha says to Jesus now, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. You see, this is Martha's statement of faith, right? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Again, if that sounds familiar, it should, because Martha really arrived early at the purpose of the entire gospel, which is, which is of course, captured by, by, by John once he's told the story of Jesus arisen from the dead. I am the resurrection. Thomas, who was that sort of practical-minded guy, who said, I won't believe unless I actually see. And then he sees, and then he makes an incredible statement, right? My Lord and my God. Okay. So you can see the same thing, by the way. We'll see this later. But Thomas has the same thing going on with him. He'd been with him. He'd seen the miracles. At some point, he probably recognized and rejoiced in the fact that he's the Christ. 
But now with him risen from the dead, it's an overwhelming reality to him of who Jesus is. Step by step, the Lord reveals more about himself to his disciples. But again, we're fortunate because John was there to record it all. And all we have to do is read this gospel and have that same impact seen in our lives in terms of our experience of who he is, our understanding of who he is. And I hope that's happening to you. I hope that this isn't just a scholarly thing or, or a fact that you're just, yep, it's about faith but that you enter into the story and understand how amazing it was to Ben for these people to have seen this unfold and to have understood more and more about who Jesus is. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, verse 15 again, so that you may believe. Right, we've seen that. But then he says one more thing. But let us go to him. Let us go to him. You know, sometimes the the tiniest words make the biggest, boldest statements. Let us go to him. Sometimes the tiniest words make the biggest statements. First of all, there's that word us, right? What is he telling them? Oh, you're coming with me. You're all in now, right? And then, there, but then there's that word him. Now, you may miss this. But let me read it again. Let us go to him. Not let us go to Martha and Mary, right? Not even let us go to his tomb. Let us go to him. Now, would you normally say that if somebody was in a tomb for four days? We're going to see Lazarus. You wouldn't, right? You wouldn't. But that's what he says. That's an amazing thing. Jesus just got finished saying Lazarus from that was dead, and yet here he is now saying that. Oops, yeah, that's right. Here he is now saying he's speaking as if Lazarus was still alive. He's just fallen asleep. He's he is in my mind. He's alive again. That's powerful. I wonder if the disciples picked up on this. Any wagers? I don't think they did. I don't think they they figured out yet what he was really saying. I want to show you another time. And a statement like this was made by a, by, a, by a great man of faith. And to do that, we're going to go to the book of Genesis. Because there was another man who also believed that God could raise the dead if need be. There was another man who also believed that God could raise the dead if need be. And his name was Abraham. We're about to go to Genesis 22. I'm going to set it up. Abraham was another man who made a statement. That indicated that he believed God could raise the dead if that's what it took. The Lord, we're going to see this in Genesis 22, asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, as a burnt offering. Now, you know what? Here's another shocking thing that, that the Lord said to a person. I told you, right, that, that Isaiah, I mean, oh my goodness. That Isaac, your son, is the one through whom I am going to fulfill all the promises, right? He's a miracle child. And yet, this is what I want you to do this weekend, Abraham. I want you to take him, pack up the wood, pack up the fire, and I want you to walk up to the Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him on an altar as a burnt offering. By the way, you know what happens to a burnt offering, don't you? It's burned, right? 
think now that must have been a shock to Abraham. That must have been not what he expected. Yet he did it. Look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 4. Genesis chapter 22, verse 4. He now arrives. He's right. He's right at the foot of Mount Moriah, almost. On the third day, verse four, Genesis twenty-two. I'll give you a moment to get there. If you need it. Genesis chapter twenty-two, verse four. Abraham has already had an interesting life, where he was asked by the Lord to pick up everything he had, go to a place they'd never heard of before called Canaan. And then there's amazing life that goes on, ups and downs. But he's arrived at a point now. We're going to see just how powerfully he has, he will demonstrate what he now is sure of. Genesis chapter 22, verse 4. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and he saw the place, Mount Moriah, from a distance. Abraham said to his young men who would come with him, Abraham at this time was incredibly wealthy. He had many servants. Some of them came with him. Okay, And he said, stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go over there. And we will worship. And we will return to you. We will worship. And we will return to you. His men didn't know what was going to happen on the top of that mountain. Well, they thought what you would naturally think that he's going up there to worship and somehow or other he's going to get a lamb or some animal. He's going to put it on the altar. And of course, they'll be back. It may take a little while. Well, that was not a remarkable thing for him to say in their eyes. We will worship and we will return to you. But you see, his men didn't know what he knew, which was what? He was going to sacrifice his son on that altar. So for him to say, we, Isaac, as well as I, will return to you, was an amazing, remarkable statement of faith. That could happen. Isaac is going to come back down the mountain with Abraham. The writer of Hebrews kind of explains the significance of this very, very well. So let's now go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Again, this is a very similar statement to what Jesus said. Lazarus is dead. Let us go to him. Okay. We will worship and we will return to you. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. We're not going to a lot of passages today, but they're all over the place, right? Daniel, Genesis, Hebrews. By faith, there's that word again. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He went through with it. As a matter of fact, if we were to read Continue to read in Genesis 22. His, first of all, Isaac asked him, hey, I see the wood, I see the flame, but where's the, where's the lamb? And God said, God himself will provide it. And then he went through with it. He, he put his son on that altar. He strapped him to the altar. He had a knife in his hand and he was ready to stab him in the heart. And at that moment, the angel comes, probably the Lord himself, actually. The, the angel of the Lord said, stop. Now I know that you fear God. And in Hebrews chapter 11, 
verse 17 to 19, we get an explanation, we get a commentary. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, that's Abraham, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he, Abraham, to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. God said it, and Abraham believed it. I don't understand this. I don't know how I could possibly, although he did think about it, but it seems impossible. But yet with God, all things are possible. In Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered, he stopped and he thought about it. Always a good idea, by the way, when you're faced with a crisis, stop and think, recall, right? Recall the promises God has made to you. I will never leave you. I will never desert you. All things are working together for the good, even though right now it doesn't seem so. In everything, give thanks. Don't You don't have to give thanks for, for everything. But in any situation you find yourself, give thanks. Right? Do not worry. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And you can go on and on that recall the promises. It'll put you in a totally different place. So he stopped and he thought about it and he considered that God is able. See that? That's a simple statement, but how powerful is it? God is able. I mean, we're seeing that in, in our study of the prophet Isaiah. That's the same message that the Lord's trying to get through to the Israel, Israelites. I am able. I am sovereign. I have come through for you so many times. There's no comparison between me and any other God, so-called God. I am able. I can do whatever it is that I want. I know all things. I'm all powerful, the Lord says. I love you. I promised you. I'm good. To, to, I'm good. My word is, is uh, reliable. God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he, Abraham, also received Isaac back as a type. Now, there's a lot there to unpack. All right? Maybe someday we'll study the book of Hebrews and we'll unpack it. Right? Just That word type just means that prelude. Right. A prelude to somebody coming after that would be the fulfillment of all of this in the most remarkable way. And that, of course, would be God himself, God, the father, sacrificing his own son. God is able. God is able. God is able to raise people even from the dead. That's what Martha believed. That that's what Abraham believed. And if I could put it this way, that's what Jesus believed in his humanity. OK. Jesus is remarkable because at the same time, he's a human being. He's about to weep, right? But at the same time, of course, he and the Father are one. So so don't try to figure that out, okay? But in his humanity, he also was sure that his Father was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And not only that, but Jesus knew why. Abraham was convinced. Jesus was convinced, too. You see, because raising Lazarus from the dead wouldn't be Jesus' work. It wouldn't. It would be the Father's work. That's one of the things that comes through loud and clear, that that every time Jesus performs a miracle, it's at the moment that the Father ordained for it to happen, and he is, in a sense, using the power of his Father, or at least giving glory to his Father in what he's about to do. The Father will be raising Lazarus from the dead. And just as Abraham was certain that God would raise Isaac from the dead, if he had to, Jesus was even more certain that his father would raise Lazarus from the dead. You want to know why? Ultimately, Jesus knew why the father was going to do it. That's why he was sure. 
He knew why the father was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that this would be the most amazing statement of all to the power and the glory of his father. He knew the reason was that people may believe. And he knew that that's what the purpose of Jesus was there. His mission, right? He enlightens every man. I came that all may believe in me, right? You may know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the purpose of Jesus was that people would see who he is and believe in him. So I want in closing, let's just go to one more passage in the, in the Gospel of John. And that's in chapter 11, verse 40. But Jesus has the encounter with Martha, brings her to the point of understanding that he is the resurrection and the life. And now he's going to put the most amazing, indelible stamp that you can possibly imagine on that statement that he's made. He follows it up. He's at the tomb now. And people, there's a crowd that has gathered. The Jews from Jerusalem that were there mourning with Martha and Mary are there at the tomb with everybody else, they're watching. What's Jesus going to do now? John eleven forty. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, notice this, you will see the glory of God. Not only will the glory of God be here, but you'll see it. How do you see the glory of God? If you believe, you will see, the, you will see it. The glory of God just is, right? But if you believe, you'll see it. You'll be paying attention. You'll understand what's going on. You'll, you'll understand that this is a fulfillment of a promise that the Lord made to me. If you believe, you'll see it. Verse 41. So they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, notice what he does. He prays to the Father out loud. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. You have heard me. See it? I knew that you always hear me. I knew it. But the reason, the reason, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Lazarus, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So he he, he had to go to the tomb because he realized what it would take for some people to believe. Right. Would be that that Lazarus who'd been dead four days at the moment Jesus summons him just comes right out of that tomb. And again, the reason was simple, that people might believe that the father had sent Jesus, that people might believe that the disciples might believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that you, whoever you might be, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we just want to just take a moment here and marvel at the perfection of your plan, at the perfection of the things that your son said and did, and how, how you inspired the, the writer of the Gospel of John, John, the one whom Jesus loved, to capture these events and these statements out of a wide, wide, almost infinite number of actions and statements that he could have. But you inspired him to select these as the as the most effective way so that people might believe that your son, that Jesus is your son and he's the Jewish Messiah. And later on, 
that, that people would understand that he died for their sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead, so that whoever simply believes in him will have eternal life. Father, help us to remember these things that we have seen ourselves in, in the document, in the writing, in the capturing of what has happened. And we, we ask that we would not only keep them in mind, that we would also, after we've considered them once again, share them. And that we too would understand the purpose of why it is that you've revealed these things to us. You know that we're believers, and yet we too need to be inspired, need to have our minds opened up, need to be in awe over and over again at who your son Jesus Christ really is. We ask this all in his name, Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All righty. Well, I know this is a little cramped environment this morning, although we, I don't know why, but a few people ahead of time even told me I'm not coming today. So we had we had plenty of room anyway. Um, next week, we'll be back where we normally meet in the cafeteria. We, By the way, this is where we have our Bible study on Thursday. You can look around and say, well, this is a pleasant place. I'm, I shouldn't be afraid of coming, right? Look. So, so we'll have Bible study at Thursday at 630. And we always have that here in this room, in the conference room. So please join us if you can. I also want to mention briefly um, uh, the subject of giving. Giving, okay? I'm not going to make a pitch this morning, so you can relax, okay? But I do want to explain it, uh, one thing, because I see it over, coming, coming up again over and over and over. And that is the issue of tithing. Most churches today enforce the legal principle of tithing on their people. Notice how I said that, the legal principle of tithing, because that's what it always was. See, see, tithing was essentially a tax that the Lord had established for the nation because nations need revenue, right? Boy, do we know that, right? But, but of course, there was good budgetary practices going on because they never increased the percentage but also something else that even in the old testament there were also free will offerings which meant you weren't forced to do it you just did it as, a, as an expression of worship see it's not an expression of worshiping god that you pay taxes i'm sorry to have to disabuse you of that if you thought so but it is an expression of gratitude when you freely give well, the great thing about being in the church age, right? great thing about being in the body of Christ is that we're over on this side always, all right? Uh, and not only are we on the side of free will offerings, but the Lord has very kindly said now that it's you don't have to give it to me, the Lord says. You don't have to, you, you are free to give however you wish. And, you know, when we look at for example, 1 Corinthians and Romans and, and 2 Corinthians especially. And we look at what we're taught about giving. What we're taught about is to give generously as the Lord has blessed you. And often what they're doing is taking care, in the case of what was happening in the first century, of the poor in Jerusalem. Not any, but, not, but specifically believers in Jerusalem who, because of their, their, state, their, their belief and their boldness and preaching their belief were ostracized by the by the Jews at that time and therefore they sort of like what we see today you know in places like Pakistan and and other places as well even Nigeria with our friend Nicholas right when people make a bold stand in most parts of the world they're ostracized they get the worst jobs right that was the motivation 
All right. So in other words, the motivation is, is a motivation of love and a motivation of gratitude and an expression that you want to support some way or other the body of Christ. Right. Now, of course, the most important thing that the body of Christ needs is the preaching of the word. There's no doubt about it. But our mentality is not I'm given to a church. I'm given for a building. Not at all. It's I'm given the way that I've been given things by the Lord for the benefit of, of the body of Christ and the benefit of people who don't believe who can, through the body of Christ, learn about who Jesus is and believe in him. So I just want to pass that along today. With that, you dismiss. Enjoy this beautiful weather. The old, my consolation this, this week has been, I look north where my family is. It's just as hot up there as it is down here. So I'm feeling good about that. Anyway, you're dismissed. Have a great day.